Up next on episode 36 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff with special guest Eric Sink of SourceGear discuss source control present and future, why writing a compiler is an important rite of passage for programmers, and how budding software engineers should be educated. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. I told you it's because I'm awesome. That's, that's just I'm awesome, and my awesomeness comes across in Skype very, very well. It's like you're standing in my ear. <laughs> Let's uh, tell our listeners I don't know. what this show is all about. Today we have a special guest host. See how it's not like a guest. It's a guest host. Excellent. Okay. And our guest host today is Eric Sink of Source Gear. That's right. Happy to and you know, you know what I have? Yes. And you know what I have directly in front of me, which is awesome, is I have this book, Eric Sink on the Business of Software. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Jeff, you should read that. And it has, uh, it, it's signed, which is nice. Very nice. Thank you, Eric. And uh, it also has a forward by this guy, Jewel Spolesky. I don't know who that is. So some guy wrote a forward. But it's a good book. And you know what's funny is I actually Talking read this pay. book, actually cover to cover recently. I Occasionally when I go on trips, I take books like this with, with me and... Uh, Eric, I had read a bunch of your, your stuff, obviously, as you had posted it, but it, um, I, had, I have all these dog-eared pages from questions that I had <laughs> when I was uh, reading the book. So we can get into that uh, at some point, but this is a great book, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Now, this is mostly a compilation, though, right? This is a compilation of stuff you had posted on your blog. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. Most of the stuff was, was on the blog first, and we cleaned it up a little bit during the editing process for the book, but mostly it's blog stuff. Right. But I, I enjoy compilations like this because you always, with the blogs, I mean, obviously you can read it online, but sometimes it's nice to get a continual stream. It's kind of like, say you're watching The Sopranos, you could watch one episode every Sunday for a month, or you could just watch all of it on DVD all at once. Um, that works I view well this for like uh, that. Uh, Arrested Development, I found. Yeah, sometimes it's nice just to consume a lot. Like, you know it's good, like The Sopranos is good, so like if one episode is good, 15 episodes in a row is awesome. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like go to the bathroom or anything. That's really just that like a very, for... very long movie. Yeah, so anyway, it's excellent, I enjoyed it, so, so um, uh, appreciate it. Uh, Eric, by way of introduction, you're the founder of SourceCure, but not the CEO, is that right? <laughs> Um, I sometimes use the CEO title, but that's, um, I, I would say I am not actually, um, You're sort in, of uh, typically, typically right now the, uh, the management of the company is being actually done by somebody else, my business partner, Corey. Hmm. And so what do you, what's your day like? What do you do every day? Um, my day is basically, um, I do still have my hand in marketing stuff pretty actively. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm involved with, uh, the people who are doing marketing more than I am and talking with them and meeting with them and brainstorming ideas and stuff. Um, and for the last year or so, I've actually been heads down um, mostly as a coder and writer, um, working on some things I'm not ready to talk about publicly and then doing my, my writing and blogging, which 
from the complaints I get about how how seldom I write on my blog, you'd think I never write, but the fact is I do do some writing. So yeah, it's just all in invisible ink. So there, Mr. Smarty Pants. <laughs> there you go. Um, but I, I have an, I have another complaint actually. So Eric, yeah. the occasional. Occasionally you write, and it's very exciting when I see it pop up in my feed reader. I'm like, ooh, Eric wrote something. And uh, you wrote something about the whole C uh, controversy that we occasionally we bring up. It's like uh, this recurring theme on our podcast. It's like, should coders know C? And I loved your post yep. because I totally – I read it, and I was like, oh, he's going to agree with me. This is awesome. I can use this <laughs> against Joel. And I read it, and I was like, oh, he's totally going to agree with me. He's totally going to agree with me. And then you like switched he? me at the last minute. I was like, oh, Eric Sink. You got me. You agree <laughs> with Joel. I'm so happy I was able to annoy you. Yes. I was I was so convinced you agree with me. So what's new in um uh yeah so uh, you were telling us that you do a lot of coding a lot of writing mostly writing yeah. marketing. Yeah, um I've uh you know I've continued to to do some writing. A lot of the writing I'm doing lately is working on um I have this thing on my blog called Source Control How To. Yeah. Uh, which is that was awesome. you know not at all related to the business of software stuff that you and I often talk about but Right. Um, it's it's actually very popular. It's it's like the number two thing on my blog after the story about how to find a Wii, which really sucks because you know, <laughs> the number one traffic source of my blog is people looking for a Wii. So, really uh, but yeah, source control how to is very popular, and I've been saying for ages that I was going to get it in book form, and so that's something I'm working on right now. Does uh, is there a lot of um, now that the hot new source control systems are Mercurial and Git? Which, if you thought source control was confusing, just wait until you have source control where everybody has their own repository <laughs> with its yeah. own branches. <laughs> and right. they're all sending each other changes one at a time, like randomly across the hall. Oh, here's that fix you wanted. Uh. <laughs> Actually, Eric, do you have any... One of the things I loved about that series was that I feel like so few developers really understand source control. And I feel like the reason you understood it was because you guys wrote it, like literally, you wrote a source control system, right. <laughs> which I love because I think that's the best way to understand something is to like yeah. sit down and just write it. I mean, then you really understand it, right? Like then you can teach people how it works and you did a great job of that. Uh, but with that in mind, if you assume, and this is a big assumption that most developers have kind of sort of mastered fundamental source control, which I find not to be true, frankly. <laughs> no, they usually, most of them, even if they have, it's the check in, check out that they understand, but like branching and merges and right. that all sort of confuses the heck out of them. Right. Did right. we lose Eric? Are you still okay? Good. Um, I muted for a second just to try something. So go ahead. No. Okay. Sorry. Thought I lost you there. Um, yeah. So with with that in mind, do you feel like okay, these new source control systems, the big hook, and this is what you brought up, Joel, is that they theoretically make branching and merging much easier. Which, if if true, is a big deal because that is by far one of the most complicated things to understand and sort of master in, like, say, subversion or. I don't. To me, the fact that they make branching and merging easier just means that your more your your coworkers are more likely to branch and merge, and you are more likely to be confused. <laughs> well, that's very true. True, but I, I don't know, I, I, Eric. I'd like to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. So, well, actually, I mean, Joel asked me to select some questions or a question, and all the ones I was looking at on Stack Overflow were questions about DVCS and Git and Subversion and why they're better and things <laughs> like that. So, <laughs> I mean, we can we can go ahead and dive into that now, but it's something I think about a lot. Oh, um, let's do it. I think it's very topical, and I, I would love to hear about it. Okay, so certainly um, the uh, the thing about the about DVCS. I mean, the first thing that I usually want to say is that... Wait, this DBCS um, is distributed... Version control. Version control. 
Yeah, right. D- distributed version control system, or decentralized sometimes. Decentralized. So that's what Mercurial and Git are the, the first generation of the distributed decentralized. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, although, I mean, I guess Larry McVoy of BitKeeper would probably want us to say that his was the first generation, which is probably pretty close to true. Okay. Because he's had this basic technology shipping for years and years and years, but of course like his you system costs yeah. like a ton. So, um, but yeah, the thing is, I mean, the thing is, it's really intriguing, but all of the evangelism about it is really, really awful. I mean, we, we keep, people ask, why should I use DVCS? And the usual answer is, go see Linus's video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then the second answer is, I can code on an airplane. And the problem is, first of all, you know, <laughs> we hardly ever code on airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> and Linus's video is so rabidly, you know, rapidly pro DVCS and really inflammatory. He's done more damage to ma- DVCS is going mainstream than anybody else. There's no really? question. Oh yeah, his I mean if you look at his video, he basically says if you're a subversion user, you are an idiot. So that actually I mean, makes people vi- want to be subversion users because they want to be idiots. No. <laughs> kind of well, yeah. I don't know what it makes people want to do, but it doesn't make people want to use Git, I don't think. I don't think, you know, I I really do feel like there's something about you know, if you take a, a, a progression along the, um, you know, the autism scale from a normal civilian to, uh, you know, a, an IT-style in-house programmer to um, a pretty good, like, you know, Microsoft-style programmer to, a, like, a deep, dark operating system Lisp hacker programmer, and then the kernel programmers all the way on the right-hand side, the people that, that, that actually write Lisp compilers, like, along that scale... Uh, right. I, I sort of feel like what's happening is that you're getting people that have a better and better aptitude for keeping complicated hierarchies in their head all at once or like multiple relationships between multiple things. So that's like <laughs> there's some point at which they can understand pointers. There's that level of indirection. And then there's some point at which they can understand recursion where they're having to think about something at several levels of abstraction at the same time. And then there's a point at which they can understand source code control. And then sort of to the right on that scale is actually understanding branching and merging and multiple repositories and decentralization. Yeah. It's kind of, it's actually kind of high up there in the, in the level of complexity that it takes to really, really grok it. And you can explain it to people and they might understand it once, but, and, or, you know, and I think many people, if they have it explained to them well, will be able to just learn the four commands that they need to use and kind of get how those are working. I think that's true, but I, I mean, I, and I fundamentally think you're right. And when you, what you said earlier about um, if your tool does branching and merging better and easier, that means people will use it more, and that's bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some big truth to that um, because DVCSs and Git and things like that are, are conceptually much harder than tools like Subversion. Mm-hmm. But my interest as a version control vendor is basically. I keep running into these situations where if our product was a DVCS, we could weasel our way out of certain tech support situations that we currently have trouble with. It, you mean you would have an answer to conceptually, What's that? You would have an answer to certain problems that you don't currently have an answer right. to. Right. I mean, we get people saying, um, you know, hey, we've been vault users. We're happy for years. And now, you know, we just we just added this site in Ireland and we want to be able to synchronize the two repositories. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, the answer with Vault is, well, no, it's not going to work the way you want it to because it's not a DVCS. Um, and if we actually, I, I really think the people who are trying to sell or, or give <laughs> DVCSs to normal people are having a terrible time of it I'm because sure. it's conceptually hard and it's yeah. scary and it doesn't make any sense. But if it were presented to them as a as a good version control system and don't and just keep all the distributed aspects a secret 
Right. And then when they come into one of these problems that DVCS can solve, DVCS is flexible enough to actually do it. That, I mean, that aspect of it is cool. That'll be the thing that takes these systems mainstream. But right, right now, they're conceptually so hard to grok that... And the people Normal that people. are inventing them are not really the best people to try to explain them because they have the crisp knowledge, right? They understand it. So it's very hard for them to see, why don't you get it? Why don't you understand? <laughs> Commit is not That's the same right. as a push. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's some of the... Some of these guys are, are just really, really, really smart, and some of them are some of the worst people to explain it. I mean, yeah. the guy who wrote Darks is really smart, yeah. and it's not clear that he can explain... right why darks is cool to the average vb programmer i'm sure he can't yeah yeah there's definitely stuff in there that doesn't uh I, 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 you know once somebody has the conceptual breakthrough or whatever it is the mental agility to understand um the idea of like lots and lots of little branches and merges and stuff like that on the other hand there's sort of the uh, uh one thing that people really like about it is the ability to check in all the sort of check in constantly without really committing into the code that everybody else is using yet right. until you've gone through you know until you've got everything done or until you've got because a lot of times people on the old systems would sit there without checking anything in for days while they worked on a new feature um and that wasn't good cuz then they got no benefits of source code control for those few days seeing what they just yeah. did rolling back 10 minutes uh, just because they're guy who's, people. I was going to say, the guy who I, who's done the best job explaining that aspect of it, I think, is um, Eric Raymond has been writing this thing on distributed source control. Really? And um, he explains it as commit before merge. And it's it's kind of backwards from the way tools like CVS and Subversion are. Subversion makes you merge before commit. Right. Tools like Git allow you to commit and then later merge. Uh, and so it, you don't have this obstacle in the way of commit, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, it's a handy thing. The consequence of that is you suddenly realize that you no longer have an unambiguous notion of latest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that in itself is kind of a conceptual problem. But I'm already confused. <laughs> just, just the fact that, <laughs> that it's, it's a clarifying explanation to say that commit before merge versus merge before commit is something that I... I can only understand because I know what it means and I can sit there and think through it. But I don't think that's an explanation. Maybe, well, okay, maybe he's so got one somewhere. <laughs> I don't know if that's it's there. a little bit of a light bulb for me, but yeah. <laughs> I agree. It's not a good explanation. But, you know, the, the one thing I kind of like is that the way Accurate presents it is a little tree and like you're a leaf in the tree and you're pushing things into your little repository and then later they could be pushed up higher and higher closer to the trunk of the tree where other developers will start to see it on their little branches. So that one always made sense to me. AccuRev does a nice job explaining their stuff, except that they, what I don't like is uh, they invent new terminology for everything, and so yeah. I have to, like, and then they put TM next to them all. <laughs> and they have to mentally so, translate. Yeah, I have to mentally map everything they're saying to what it really means on other systems, and I know all source control tools do this to some extent, but um, AccuRev does it a little more than others, and I think I think it means that once you're in the AccuRev world, you're happy, but... Looking from the outside in is kind of hard. Wait, wait, wait. So, Eric, you're complaining about weird terminology, but I believe there's some weird terminology in uh, Vault as well. One in particular is, I believe, renegade is a term. Is that correct? <laughs> okay. I, I do Guilty. not believe that's a standard source control term. Call me crazy. It's funny, and it's awesome. It's actually a clever phrase. But it's kind of like the whole blame thing, blame, praise. It's like, blame, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, blame is standard. To agree on terminology is the day the world, I think, will end. But with that in mind, 
is is distributed version control something that you guys are going to add to your product? I mean, do you feel like it's something that's necessary for your product to evolve, or is it just some weird evolutionary thing? Or I don't know. What's your take on sort of the future of version control, if you will? I don't think it's necessary, and I, you know, it's something we're looking at very carefully because you know, I mean, we have to look at what's next in our industry. Um, I do believe that DVCS will be mainstream eventually um, when when the world gets to the point where where we all realize that the harder you work to explain DVCS, the worse it gets, so stop. <laughs> um, but I do think it'll be mainstream eventually. I just think it's going to take some time. I think most of the current systems that are out there will not be, um, you know, will not be part of that mainstream push. Uh, you know, tools like Git, as cool as they are, um, I don't think Git will ever have the popularity of something like Subversion, which is so simple and easy to grasp. So. I think uh, I think Git is sort of like the um, you know like the the VI, right? Like you can learn it and you can use it, but 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 somewhere Word for Windows is going to come along, and it's going to be the same thing with a different metaphor and a little bit of you know lipstick pasted on top of it. But really, just maybe an easier to understand metaphor, and people will be you know suddenly it will become more popular. That's a good way to explain that. Uh, I like. I really do think that's why. Like, I give it. it um, you know, I don't follow Acura that closely, but to the extent that they're making up terminology, sometimes that's what you have to do to help people understand what it is that your product does. Uh, you just have to realize that the word that you know that that was made up by the Mercurial developers or the Git developers for some particular aspect may not be the word that exactly explains it the best way. Uh, right. You know, fetch versus push, and you may come up with a better metaphor. And if you just use that different terminology, you know, it may be an easier way to explain your your program model to the users. Yeah, well, I think discoverability just, is a big point. And actually, just taking it in a slightly different direction, Eric, I thought it was a. There was some post you made that was very amusing to me. It was about you had been working with Eclipse for the first time. Yeah. And it was about um, I think background compilation, which is one of my favorite things that you know in in. And people don't really appreciate this because I think most people don't come from a VB background that, you know, every time, every time you do something in VB, it's being compiled. So one of the biggest conceptual shifts when I switched to C Sharp was I was constantly compiling. I had to sit there and hit Control-Shift-B all the time. And, and granted, maybe this is my personal style because it's what I'm used to. It's, that's what it's all about. But I just found it amusing. They were like, wow, Eclipse has this great new feature <laughs> where as you type stuff... <laughs> You know, if it's wrong, it lets you know right then. And I was like, wow, welcome to the world of VB like five years ago. Actually, that was in (laughs) VB going all the way back to like basic. You would type a line, you hit enter. But but it's an awesome feature. And I think the reason C-sharp programmers don't appreciate how awesome it is is because it hasn't been exposed to them. Like the usability isn't there. Like they don't get it because they haven't lived it, right? And I think that's kind of where this discussion is going. Yeah. It's all about discoverability, ultimately, right? It's not about how awesome the feature set is. It's about how easy that feature set is for the user to actually Notice. take advantage of and understand is the, really the big challenge. I think even in source control, like, you got to understand, your, your oh, source control you posts there. Were, were my life. Like, <laughs> like I was teaching people, developers, uh, team system source control. And you start mm-hmm. with the real basics, like, how do I merge? Like, just merging can blow people's minds, right? And that's the, the, the very bedrock of source control. You know, and then getting into branching and merging and tagging and stuff—it's you have to go very much step by step with people, and they have to get it at every sort of intersection. Otherwise, they're off in the weeds. So, I appreciate the challenges of distributed version control because it adds yet another layer to something that people already kind of already don't get. The mainstream developers, and it's all about—I guess—running a software company as you do, you would obviously appreciate this. It's all about 
the UI at some level really helps the people get it. So when you give people like a command line tool, it's like, oh, here, just use get type commands. They're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, that's a, not really a great product, right, to sell? Or well, I guess it doesn't right. sell. No, that's a good, really, really good way of saying that. I mean, you're, you're making something complicated that is already too complicated. Um, the other problem, you know, from my perspective is top to bottom, version control means so many different things at each level of our industry that... You know, you're you're talking about completely different things. So, like, Joel uses version control. What do you guys use? Subversion, right? Uh, no, Mercurial. You guys, you, you use Mercurial. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you use version control in in all in ways that I understand. You use it the same way we do. Um, at at a really really large enterprise, like say I don't know Walmart, um, version control is mostly about trying to prevent programmers from working. <laughs> it's it's about you know we have to put obstacles in the way of programmers doing something wrong and we got so many of them we can't keep track of them we just need more obstacles can you sell us obstacles and people come to us and they don't understand that they're saying that but that's really what they want we want <laughs> obstacles <laughs> I so can it's very well, different. well that's an easy business <laughs> wait a minute I can come up with <laughs> I got, and the problem is selling idea. obstacles is is far more lucrative than selling tools <laughs> what. <laughs> But wait, the obstacle-free extreme is nobody does any version control, right? I mean, that's not nobody's going to argue that's a good idea, I don't think. Right. But that's the ultimate obstacle-free way to code. Just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and who who gives a damn, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm is that really a fair? Well, but that is that is one extreme of that continuum. So obviously, you're going to be somewhere, you know, in the that's middle. That's the uh, that's the <laughs> continuum of arteriosclerosis, where. Everything you do as you get older and older is like making sure that you never have that problem that you had before in the past. That the, <laughs> and the, the young companies and the young people just do random things, and you look at them, and you're like, hey, that's not going to work. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Somebody posted something on the Business of Software uh, discussion group uh, on Joel on Software asking um, if it was a good idea to create this very, very complicated contract with an employee who's going to write some of the code. And the contract had about 12 different clauses there explaining, you know, the first 10% of the 25% of the profits, and then you'll own 16% of this and 30. It was just a very, very complicated contract with a lot of moving parts. And I thought back to the number of times I've tried to do that. And when we tried to debug the contract, discovered it was just impossible. And at this point, I don't do weird one-off partnership contracts because I know that they're never going to work. And I've just, it took me a while to learn that. And now I'll never do that. So, right. you know, as you, as you grow older and you learn things, you, uh, you learn what not to do. And then you learn to put in place processes that prevent that from ever happening. And these processes add a little bit of extra cost to everything you ever try to do. Because everything needs to be filtered to make sure that it's not disobeying something that might cause the problem that you had three years ago. And source code control, you know, probably often starts out that way, which is you uh, you don't have a backup and you lose code, or two people overwrite each other's thingamajiggies and it's all gone, and then they they stop using a file share for their their code, and they start realizing that, or they have a lot of trouble merging. Two programmers have a lot of trouble merging their work, and they suddenly realize there's got to be an automated way. And so they institute these procedures, and, and then just, you know, as time goes on, they discover more and more things that can go wrong and more and more things that you wish you could do. Uh, and they institute more and more complicated and expensive ways to prevent those things from ever happening ever again that would cause this thing to go wrong until eventually you become Walmart and you literally cannot move forward. Right. And, and the thing is that every one of those rules and procedures, I mean, you understand why you don't do those contracts because you tried to do them and it worked out badly for yeah. you. And so you learned from that experience. And every one of these policies and procedures and obstacles that companies want has a good reason behind it. And 
you know, one of the things that I'm afraid of is that eventually I will have so much experience that I will have learned to love all of the obstacles that really, really large companies love. And, mm-hmm. and, and I look at it from now, from where I am now, it's like, I don't know if I want to be that person. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, well, you can't do like the 1-0 quick off. I mean, maybe that's why we still have startups and the startups get acquired by big companies is that the startups go out there and they, you know, they just write code and they throw it up on their servers and they don't have backups and they don't have source code control and they don't have uh, whatever it may be. And, you know, sometimes terrible things happen and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they create Twitter and it doesn't work for the first year of sort of its existence because it's too slow or the server keeps crashing or whatever right. it is. Uh, but then it becomes a really big thing. And on the other hand, um, you know, by the time a company like Microsoft that really knows how to develop software professionally, you know, by the time they come up with their 1.0 of anything, they've been working on it for three years and it's all polished in all the wrong ways and it's not the product that anybody wants. But there are 14, language, 14 different language versions of it. Right. <laughs> well, Nobody I can say it's localized. I can cite a specific example of that, actually. I mean, like, to me, you know, I spent a lot of time working with Microsoft's team system, and this is a product that, it had a lot of good qualities, but it it was very Microsoftized in the sense that, for one thing, it had a dependency on Active Directory, because every Microsoft developer, you know, lives in a world of Active Directory, and they don't really understand that not everybody does that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just some of the decisions they made, like it's a server-connected source control model, although that's kind of changing at the moment, uh, which is really awkward. Like, not not that you're on a plane necessarily. That's a contrived example. I think Eric was correct to point that out. But you have a network that's essentially not reliable, or you can't get to the server, or the server, who knows? Occasionally, you just want to develop sort of in a little bit of isolation. And the product that really supported that extremely poorly out of the box. And it was a major differentiation to say, oh, you know, to heck with this, we're just going to use Subversion. And uh, and it's a giant product. It's really hard to understand, really hard to understand. And it's also enterprise level, <laughs> meaning right. it's expensive, really expensive. I always get uh, suspicious so when the ways, installation instructions remind you that you need to have a dedicated server for this product. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's fundamentally not a bad product, but you can see where a lot of the decisions that were made were really big company decisions. And, you know, it's sort of the exact opposite of something like Subversion, which is like grassroots, you know, from the bottom up kind of product. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that's why a lot of these, you know, open source sort of grassroots initiatives end up getting a lot of traction because the people in the trenches, A, they can understand it, right? Because there's an emphasis on if you're open source, you have to be understandable because nobody will use you. They'll be like, what the heck is this crazy thing? I'm not going to, you know, your time is ultimately worth some money, right? When you buy a product from Microsoft, what you're saying is, I'm going to pay this money so I don't have to think about what this product does. It's just going to work out of the box. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that that fails, it's like a huge failure because that is the differentiator. Paying for software, in my opinion now, is like you really have to make, save somebody some time. Sometimes so. I think that uh, this problem of, you know, we discuss two tools that are completely unrelated and we, we call them the same thing. Sometimes I think it's unique to our industry because, you know, subversion and team system are so different, they shouldn't really be compared. Yet we call them both version control or, or, or even ALM. Whereas, whereas like, in, you know, in vehicles, I mean, have you seen those enormous mining trucks with the wheels that are like the, you know, yeah. one wheel is the size of a Ford F-150? Yeah. I mean, we, we refer to that and, went, and a Toyota Prius both as vehicles. Right. You know, or, I mean, they're completely unrelated. We, we never actually compare them, um, even though they're both vehicles. But the, the same thing is true of team system. And we do this all the yeah. time. Yeah. 
Because Team System, I mean, like you said, it's heavy, it's big, it's complicated. But the fact is that Team System is doing really well right now because compared to Rational, it's so inexpensive and so lightweight and so easy to deal with. <laughs> right. Right. Well, part of my, one of the first things I would tell people going in with Team System is like, you're going to ignore 80% of the features in this product. You will, because you're not going to get to them, period. It was part of the reality because it was overwhelming to the clients. So like, you can do all this stuff and then their heads explode, right? Like, what? Right. I can do all this stuff. So, I mean, this is part of the, again, part of the problem. And, and maybe, again, it's just a disconnect to the people making the decisions and ha- writing the checks. See the fee- they see the checklist. They don't actually have to use the product. They just write the checks. <laughs> but right. the people actually writing the code and actually doing the QA and you know the designers working on the project, they have to actually interact with the product at some level. And certainly when you're starting out, a lot of places I went, they didn't have a ton of process. So we ignored huge swaths of it. So I don't know. Again, that was to me one of the challenges. You know, you're, you, granted, you're comparing like a giant mining vehicle versus you know a mini or something. But what people really can use day to day is the mini. So the fact they have this mining truck kind of sucks because unless what you're trying to do is mine i mean if you're trying to move a whole bunch of coal around a toyota prius really sucks yeah i mean i i get that we're not comparing apples to apples but it was just i think frustrating for me because just so many of the essentials were were really what people needed you know the basic stuff that needed to be done really really well it's kind of like the whole i guess you call it the apple philosophy do do a very few things but do those exceptionally well Hey, let's move on to some of the uh, Stack Overflow questions. You want to do that next? Sure. Yeah. Um, Eric, you got one for us? on the? Well, I'm just trying to do a nice segue here, so while we're on the subject. Well, it's, shoot. The one I was looking at most clearly was, was the topic we just discussed. I've got oh. another one I could, <laughs> okay. I, I could mention. So, I mean, I looked through a whole bunch of these. Um, one of the ones that caught my eye had been answered several times, but I couldn't resist chiming, chiming in on it. It says, what is the single most effective thing you did to improve your programming skills? Oh, that's a good one. It's been answered a whole bunch of times, but nonetheless, you know, i got to give my answer. And my answer is, I wrote a compiler. Um, and and it's, it's sort of a specific case of some of the answers that have been given here. I mean, the answer that comes up a lot is, write lots and lots and lots and lots of code. And no, but a compiler is a kind of guy. Heck, you can't write compilers. That's impossible. What well, are you, some kind of like a wasabi, I mean, it's kind freak, of a, fog creek, lunatics? You can't write compilers. That's Humans don't write compilers. Well, it's, it's a deep, dark thing. And a lot of times people will say, don't write another compiler because the world doesn't need another compiler. And yeah. the truth is, you're right, it doesn't. <laughs> but the experience of writing one is just so cool. And the, the compiler you write is going to be crap. It's absolutely going to suck. Um, but you will have learned so much from writing a crappy compiler. And in my case, that is the single most effective thing I did to learn. It, did you um, when you did this? Did you uh, like learn about how to do it with the parsers and the lexers and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I read up everything I could. I you know I read about yak and lex and things like that. And in the end, I ended up writing my own lexer and my own yeah. recursive descent parser. Fun. Yeah, I mean, what I wrote was a C compiler in C, and I got nice. it to the point where I could self compile. Wow! And and then when I looked at it, and I was like, well, I guess I'm done here. <laughs> There's really, I mean, there's an enormous class of programming problems that knowing about lectures and parsers and recursive descent and abstract syntax trees and all that kind of stuff will solve for you. Right. And uh, right. it really is, at a certain point, to be a good programmer, you have to have gotten past that. Like, you have to, you know, once, once you've done that once, you're never going to be trying to use regular expressions where they don't work <laughs> again. <laughs> That's right. As soon as you know how easy it is to make, like, a little state machine and just, to, like, iterate over the characters and generate different characters or that kind of thing. 
Uh, and you realize oh, that wait, it's about eight lines I, of code. I, I got a related question. That's okay. Right. That's fair. If, yeah. if that's true, then why don't we have like a state machine construct, kind of like the regex class? Because like, it's so easy to write. I mean, it's a, that's, a, that's what a select statement is, right? Okay. Uh, it's a select statement in three variables. One variable. All right. Maybe yeah. I'm just not getting it then. I feel like if, if, if it's as useful as regex, there should be like a class somewhere that I could... Well, that's the whole point, is that it's sort of a, you know what, to the extent that re- re- regex is a way to, of condensing a lot of these like pattern matching kind of problems into right. the shortest number of characters possible. And right. uh, it, it's very suited to that task. But sometimes you have specific problems where you kind of wish you had, you know, all the cases where you're using parentheses in your regex to like make you know, matches and to, to say this has to be the same as that or whatever, this has to be double that. It's very, very easy to do with a state machine and very, very difficult to do with a regular expression. If, if oh, actually, maybe this is that language within a language stuff they were talking about, where basically you're building these domain-specific languages. You're saying, what I really need here is not a regular expression. It's a language. Right. You would define the Joel language, thing. like Wasabi, right? Yeah. Well, that's a different uh, – let's take that as a different example. But, I mean, let's say that I have to um, – uh, uh, let, let's take a real, real simple example. Um, you have – uh, some code that has been that emits some string. You have some strings sitting around, and these strings are in a particular format, and uh, they've got less than's and greater than's and quotation marks in them. And you know that those aren't going to work on the uh, client side, um, or I mean, those have to be embedded in HTML, and you need to you know change all the less than's into a ampersand lt semicolon, for example. And I know everybody has a library function that does this, but um, you can. Uh, you know, the the world's simplest compiler, and it's almost not a compiler, but I mean, it's a technique you would learn from writing compilers, is just to eat that thing one byte at a time and check the byte and see if it's a less than, and if it is, then you emit an ampersand LT semicolon, and if it's not, then you move on. So that's like a real simple example of like kind of going through a string, a character at a time, deciding what to do. And, um, you know, there, there, there are more abstract ways of doing this. Like you could say, well, just replace, just do a global search and replace using the replace function. But those more abstract ways of doing this sometimes lose some of the power that you have in the less abstract way of doing it. The power may be the ability. I'll give you a, you know, a great example might be, I have a regular expression, but I want it to only match if the area code is actually a real area code that's in use in the United States of America. That's a good example. That's, that's a, that's a great thing where like you could list them all in a regex kind of, or, but what if you had a function that was like, check if area code is legit? Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that you could very, very quickly do um, by by writing a little state machine uh, type thing, and th- and that's what you learn from a compiler. So I, I give that uh, uh, that's that, that's kind of a good example. I, I think that that takes you to a, a higher level of programming skills. Um, well, Eric, could you give a specific example of where later that that was helpful? Maybe you identified some situation or. Um, well, I mean, so like, yeah, one example, I mean, when you're writing a compiler and you need it to compile any non-trivial piece of code, um, just the, the sheer amount of data that you're sticking into a data structure forces you to think about scale a little bit. Uh, writing a compiler was the first time I realized that malloc is slow. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't think of malloc as slow. Yeah, yeah. Memory allocation we think of as this really simple thing. And the reality is that if you take any algorithm you've got and change it to stop allocating memory in its inner loop, it gets 10 times faster. Right, right. It's, 
it's really amazing how slow Malik is <laughs> once you stop calling. There's it. A, like for, I was writing the. There's actually like a quote unquote compiler built into CityDesk, uh, the CityScript compiler, and it doesn't really generate code. It generates pages, but I mean it does execute and it creates an abstract syntax tree and all that stuff. It's, there's a real lecture and a parser. And I was just looking at that yesterday uh, to add a little feature to it, and I noticed that instead of copying strings around, like let's say that you have a token that's uh, an if statement or something, and it's got various parts to it, like it's got the name of the, um, the variable in the case of CityDesk, but you've got this little token which is a string. So the, the natural thing to do would be to create a new string and to copy that string out of your source file. You've got a source file which you're inputting, and just to copy those bytes out into a new malloc thing. So now you've got a malloc and you've got a string copy, and uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, when you have a lot of those, it becomes really slow and really inefficient. And I noticed that what I had done in CityDesk many, many years ago is instead of ever copying the string, I just um, store uh, the offset in the source file. And I'm like, right. this, this string is the source file from character 4,736, the next five characters. That's the string. Right. And then if I ever need it again, I just then I pluck it out of the source file, but I, never co- I don't copy it until then. So that's sort of one of those like, optimizations you learn to do to avoid the malics. And that was probably a pretty big performance improvement. Yeah, that was huge. The biggest one actually was um, making my own. Instead of uh, concatenating, you know, what you always wind up doing in these things is concatenating up, up strings where you're like, you keep adding things to a string. Right. And that can cause a malloc every time the string runs out of space, depending on your library and your language and so forth. And I think the biggest performance improvement I had was writing my own managed memory uh, string class that um, basically started with 16 bytes. And when it, whenever you use them up, it doubled the amount of space. I think we talked about this last week, Jeff, right? The doubling of the... We did. And the array conversation. So uh, as soon as I did that, wow, that was that was probably the biggest thing I ever did. All of a sudden, things that would take hours became very fast. Yeah. The, uh, the double it thing, you know, it, it seems like the wrong thing to do until you remember that you'll never do it very many times. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, Joel, you said something that was taking hours. What were, what were you yeah. doing that was taking well, hours? Well, what I was doing in order to test my little, it was, a, it was the city script compiler. And, and actually, you know what it was? It was, it was, it was kind of complicated, but um, CityDesk city had a WYSIWYG mode where it used Internet Explorer to show you, um, you know, parsed HTML in, in what you see is what you get mode. And then it had a raw HTML mode where it just used like a, an edit control to show you the HTML. And every time you switched back and forth, like let's say you were switching from, um, showing it to you in Internet Explorer, to, or sorry, switching from showing it to you in source mode to stuffing it all into Internet Explorer to show you the rendered mode, you might have all kinds of stuff in the HTML, like comments and spacing and new lines and white space that is not actually meaningful to the browser that the browser would lose if the browser were held responsible. And so there was this problem that when you went from working on the HTML source, and then you switched into WYSIWYG mode, and then you came back, your, your HTML would be all smushed into you know, one big solid block, uh, which was irritating to people who would carefully work to... Um, so so we, we needed this round-trip HTML thing, so that when the HTML went into the WYSIWYG editor and then came back, it still had all the HTML things exactly the way you would set them out. Well, this, this probably predates that, but Visual Studio had that problem for a long time. You know that, right? Yeah, like it and would they, the only way to work it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only way to fix it is just a monumental amount of work. What you have to do, literally, is create these hidden spans 
that don't have any text in them but have all kinds of crap in the attributes. And you have to stuff those in. You have to have – so you get – like you make about a million spans saying, after this tag, there are 32 characters of white space. And you, you, you put that into the WYSIWYG editor. And so this was the parsing that I was doing, which is basically going through the HTML file and taking all the stuff that would get lost when it went round trip through Internet Explorer and converting it into a span. And so um, in order to uh, test this thing, I just took some enormous HTML pages. I took the biggest thing I could find, which was an article by Clay Shirky about uh, communities of their own destruction or something, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> pasted this in. And uh, when, I, when I first started working on this, it was taking 60 seconds to switch from raw mode to uh, WYSIWYG mode. And Holy uh, cow. Yeah, and when I went through, you know, I did some optimizations, but the biggest one was that string uh, allocation thing uh, yeah. to, to use string buffers everywhere, and it went from 60 seconds to zero. Like, it became, wow. in, in, for all intents and purposes, in, instantaneous. Wow. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I think even developers who have dipped their toes in the worlds of regular expressions, you quickly learn the huge weakness of regular exp- expressions is things inside other things, like paired groupings mm-hmm. are incredibly hard to deal with. Yeah, like just reg- ma- match parentheses, make sure that there's always a symbol. Match parentheses is yeah. a killer. Yeah. It's very difficult. And yet with what you're talking about with a parser and stuff, it would be very easy. Yeah, so that, easy that's a, a great example. It would teach you sort of when you see that, like don't try to solve it this way because yeah, it's a, it's a loop with a variable and a and a and a switch statement in the middle of the loop. So now, Eric, you also worked on a web browser because didn't you? That's right. Okay, because I I know uh, I talk a lot with Will Shipley on Twitter, and he's constantly bringing up the fact that he wrote a web browser. <laughs> he loves to talk about. it. He's like, I wrote a web browser, and Omniweb. I have this opinion. Yeah. Yes, OmniWeb. Which is awesome, but I think that is a good example because it's certainly uh, – I haven't done it, but I'm guessing writing a web browser would be pretty good uh, training for a lot of other things, particularly for this parsing that you're talking about. That's pretty much all you'd be doing, right? Just tons and tons of parsing? Oh, yeah. there's. I mean, you're basically writing a parser and a text layout engine. And uh, it's you know it, that's great experience too, especially when you start putting your browser through torture tests. I mean, the torture tests of the day when I was writing were nothing like they are now, and they were still, you know, there's some pretty abusive web pages out there even in 1995. So, um, yeah, that was that was great. Experience All of them well. pretty much were kind of abusive. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah thinking good. about what the web was like in 1995, it was like a, those pages were awful. Yep, definitely. There I was, remember reading. People Some thought that, that the paragraph mark was like a character was how you got a character turn character. It was a yeah. set, it was treated as a separator, not as a thing that had to be closed. Right. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Actually, let, let's talk a little bit about this because I think this goes directly to your experience, Eric. One of the things that's interesting about the web is that it's so tolerant of just crazy malformed markup. I mean, you can write JavaScript that's insane that should not compile, should not even run in yeah. any conceivable universe, and it'll work for you know, inexplicable reasons that are very difficult to understand. (laughs) And this is obviously very different historically than like, say, a C compiler, where it's like, oh, character out of place, fail, right? You know, it's super mega, mega strict. I mean, did you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I always thought that was a weird divide. Like, we have this world of developers coming up on JavaScript and HTML where it's like, oh, I can do anything. I can just type in a bunch of stuff and there's no checking and (laughs) versus the old school. So do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I was at the center of that whole mess when it happened. I mean, I got there too late. We all did. 
the initial browser implementations were all extremely tolerant because somebody read that IETF memo which says be uh, be liberal in what you accept and conservative in what you send. And so they took that to the browser implementation and say, well, you know, we should allow all the tags to be misnested. You know, it would be wrong for us not to accept that. And the result is that all web pages were written without any real constraints. And when the web started to get popular, it, uh, HTML got into the to the IETF, which is the Internet Engineering Task Force, and it's a standards body. And uh, I used to go to some of these meetings, and at one point, you know, they said, "Okay, we're going to form an HTML working group to standardize HTML 2.0. Does anyone want to be chair?" And I was stupid enough to raise my hand and say, "Well, if nobody else wants to do it. I will." So I ended up chairing the HTML 2 working group, which basically was refereeing a constant, ongoing battle between the the smart people who knew that we are making a huge mistake for the future of the web if we continue to have implementations that will accept anything. Mm -hmm. And the, I I won't call them dumb people, but people who didn't get it yet, um, who basically thought browsers should continue to accept B and I and Blink all misnested and it should just, you know, do the best it can. Right. Um, The problem is we all ended up creating implementations which were reverse you know, engineered, bug-compatible versions of uh, the original browser from NCSA or Mozilla, which was written by the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it ended up being just a terrible mess. Uh, but and once it, it never taught people to write code, you know, to write reliable code. So that's right, or to write consistent code in any re- reasonable way. Right. So, I mean, I spent the first few years of working on a web browser with people telling me that. Well, it works on this browser. Why doesn't it work on yours? And yeah. you know, okay, <laughs> so it would have been so much nicer if we had something like XML at the beginning and had it all followed. This it. is. Is there any case where be liberal? That's the. It's called the um, robustness principle, and it's attributed to John Postel, okay. who said, "Be liberal in what you accept and conservative in what you send." And it sure sounds like a nice way to get along with your neighbors, but doesn't it? It, it, it clearly. I don't. I don't think it's ever the right engineering principle because. You just have to take it one more step. If you're liberal in what you accept, then somebody will think that what they're sending is okay because it got through you. But really it isn't, and it may not get through somewhere else. Right. I, I think it was a – yeah, it's a, it's a really nice principle in, in the way it sounds, but I can't think of an example of where it actually helped the world become a better place because you know, if you're writing an FTP implementation or an SMTP implementation or whatever, yeah. you know – Writing yours to be just a little bit more forgiving than the next guy, you know, maybe that helps helps you, but it doesn't help whoever's calling you. Mm-hmm. It, it just basically teaches people to do things wrong. It's actually a, so. It, so it's sort of it's really a very selfish way to 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 participate in an ecology. Yeah, you can say you it that it. way. Yeah, because it's like, hey, I don't give a shit if you're if you're doing something wrong. I'm not going to help you or correct you. I'm just going to accept it. I'm not going to tell you or warn you. Cause it's not my problem. Right. It's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> and the result on the web is that, I mean, I don't think anybody dreamed the web was going to be as big as it was back when NCSA was was fiddling around with Mosaic and thinking, hey, what a cool idea to put images in here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not understanding how big it was going to be, we did these very questionable engineering things. And now the aggregate cost of those engineering decisions is, is in the billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, totally. I, mean, I think there's a lot of decisions like that. Like, one of my favorites is the fact that Microsoft for a long time didn't enforce the fact that you should really be an administrator on your box, kind of like the Unix world of root. Yeah. So as a result, I mean, how many billions of dollars have been spent on that? The you whole mean, antivirus? Oh, it's oh, it, right. oh, 
They didn't enforce that you shouldn't be an administrator on your on your box. Right. Yeah. And they still don't. Even with Vista, it's sort of this half-hearted, oh, you're kind of an administrator, but you're not really... We go through generations of this. You know, the the beginning of my programming career was marked by having to spend way too much time dealing with the segmented memory architecture of the uh, x86 series with segments and stuff where you only had 16-bit pointers unless you did magical stuff. And that was just like near pointers, far pointers, near pointers to far pointers, far pointers to near pointers. Segment loading the segment register was a costly operation, so C plus plus was unusable because everything had to be a far pointer because who knew where it was, and therefore, every time you call something through a far pointer, it took on a on a three eighty six twenty times as long as calling it through a near pointer, and that kind of stuff just took. It was just a tax. Forty percent of your programming time was paying this tax for the segment and architecture of the x86. That finally went away, and now forty percent of our time was spent dealing with interoperability with different web browsers. So whatever the thing may be, there's always some stupid, horribly bad decision that was made that may have sounded right at the time that winds up just creating this gigantic tax that all the programmers have to pay. Well, I think it's a little different, though, because the hardware guys had you know, physics limitations they had to deal with. And I think in, in Eric's uh, case, it's just you know, sort of you have the people that get it versus the people that don't get it. Maybe. And even then, I would I would put a caveat on that because so you're, you're saying like the segmented architecture. You're saying the segmented architecture made a lot of sense at the time. It was a lot better than than the page. What were they doing? They called it bus bank bank switching, which they used to do. Yeah, well, that's what I was ask. I mean, there had well, to been good reasons for that. Although the 68k chip got it more, you know, pretty much closer to correct. So maybe there's no defense. But you know, it's not the same thing as parsing HTML. I mean. It would have been if if we knew better, we could have just written code differently right from the beginning. We just didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, right. Hey, let's uh, uh, let's take another. Do you want to take a question from a listener or something? We're sort of running out of time yes. here. Let's kind do of. It. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I got a I got a question which I'm going to read. Normally we take audio questions, but this one was pretty good. Uh, it's from Espen Grindhaug uh, in Norway, I guess, and he wrote: um, In many universities and colleges around the world, they don't teach many of the important new quote unquote technologies that software companies use, like SOA. ESB, and much more. I don't know what ESB is. Um, can you please list some books to read for college students who want to get up to speed with these things? Signed, Espen Grindhaug, um, wow. who I think is a student in Norway. And actually, I don't know what either SOA or ESB is, so you don't. You guys, you can just skip that, Espen. But um, I, want, I, was, I thought I'd ask Eric and, and Jeff, kind of, what do you, what, what do you wish people uh, learned when they were coming out of school that they're just not being taught? What are the most important? Eric, you have tons about this in your book, so take it away. Oh, man. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't want anybody at school learning SOA. Uh, I mean, that's just me, but I don't. Yeah, no. Um, I happen to like the way top universities train programmers by not training them. I mean, I know it's, it's the favorite thing to complain about. Universities <laughs> teach computer science, not programming. Mm-hmm. But the best resumes are the ones I see that they learned computer science in the classroom and they learned programming on their own. On their own, and, right. And that's the way I want things to work. And when I see somebody who learned programming in the classroom, I'm suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> and when I see somebody who, who never learned computer science or they learned, you know, instead of computer science, they learned how to use Visual Studio, I run. Yeah, so yeah. Absolutely. I kind of like the way things are the way right now, even though everyone complains about it. This I'm is kind of this is kind of funny because I don't think no, nobody teaches basic, right? But I just did a little poll the other day at Fog Creek. I asked the programmers here um, for how many of them was basic their first language, and it was more than half. And these are kind of they're they're relatively young, so basic was already obsolete by the time. <laughs> so we're we're literally we're talking about people that learn programming at home, like when they were eleven. You know, yeah. That's those are the. 
Those little ones. It's true. The, the purpose of a computer science education is to train you to think in certain ways. And some of that stuff, like if you take a compiler's class to train you to think, as we were talking about earlier in this episode, in terms of like state machines and lectures and parsers and abstracts and text trees and data structures and that kind of stuff. Um, that's, a, that's sort of a great theoretical underpinning, actually, to a lot of coding. And actually, like learning the coding is still pretty useful on the side. But I think that's the question to be legit. This is what he's asking is like, what should you learn in your spare time when it's not outside of the CS curriculum? What's the stuff that you kind of wish people came out having studied on their own? Well, well my, mine is, my, mine is really short. I think it's all about internships. I think it's all about complementing. You got to have some work experience to see what's actually happening in the real world. Cause even hobby stuff is not going to really tell you Mm-hmm. sort of the pointy-haired boss way that things happen in the world. And you need to be ready for that. And it'll also teach you, like, source control and some of the other common things that are out there. So that would be... I think it's hugely important to do internships in, in, a, in a computer science education, for sure. I would agree with that. I mean, as long as your internship was letting you do something real. Um, but even still, I, I think some of those hobby projects or open source participation or something like that, I mean, those are the things you can control. You can't control whether you get an internship at the coolest company. But you can say, I'm going to pick this open source project, I'm going to hack on it, and I'm, and I'm going to work on it until I make a valuable contribution, and I'm going to put that on my resume. And I, I think it's a strong resume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would uh, actually, I, I was trying to think about this because there is sort of a list of things that, that people pretty much do have to know. Like right now, to to be a programmer developing, let's say, web web apps these days, you you really do kind of already have to know CSS, HTML, JavaScript, AJAX techniques, uh, what's yeah. possible with AJAX, jQuery. Now, I'm not saying this should be added to a curriculum. I am saying that that is kind of a working programmer's knowledge set these days. It's hard to imagine anybody at Fog. I mean, you can learn it on the first day, sure, but you can't learn all those things on the first day. If you come in not knowing CSS because you've never done it, but you, know, you kind of know JavaScript, that's okay. But I mean, if you come in literally only knowing what's in a computer science curriculum, uh, it's going to take you a long time to get up to speed on web development. If, if I have to teach somebody HTML, good God, that would be. So, right. Oh, definitely. And I think part of the, one of the big surprises for computer science students is they, they go to college so they can get a job. But what they don't understand, and some Students find this to be a huge surprise. Computer science degrees do not teach programming. They don't teach web development. They don't teach any of the things you need to do at your job. Mm-hmm. They, merely, they merely give you a piece of paper saying, I learned how to learn. Mm-hmm. And you have to, like you're saying, I mean, you listed those web technologies that you need. Somewhere along the way, if you want to differentiate yourself from the other candidates looking for a job, you've got to pick up some of that stuff because you're not learning it in the classroom. I, I will say that source control, I think, is a big exception. I think even if you teach the theory of source control in a very abstract, computer science way, that's hugely important. I think it's a major... That's probably my only real complaint about like core curriculums. I do think source control absolutely should be there in some form. I don't care how ab- abstract you're going to be, uh, but you should have it. Also, I wanted to read this one section, Eric, that I thought was funny from your book. It's about you applying for a developer job at Spyglass, and you had, <laughs> written, and you had written the C compiler, and you showed yeah. him your work. Like, hey, I've written the C compiler... And he, he looked at the code and realized you had already gotten a lot of the bad code out of your system, so your next 100,000 lines of code ought to be pretty good. <laughs> so maybe that's the way to look at this, is so you can get all that bad code out of your system by writing it early, and then you know, when you get a real job, you can say, oh, I wrote all, already wrote all my crappy code. This is going to be the good stuff now. Yeah, that's very true. 
And oh, by the way, my uh, University of Illinois does teach uh, source control. In fact, the way I learned that is I wrote on my blog that universities don't teach source control. And my former advisor sent me a mail saying, yes, we do actually teach source control. And as punishment for saying the, the wrong thing, you can come give two lectures on it next semester. <laughs> so. We have, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of schools that have a, either a software, a complete software engineering curriculum where a lot of that stuff is taught. Um, or they just have one or two interesting software engineering classes. And um, I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, there's, a, there's plenty of universities. I met a professor in uh, South Korea who is uh, teaching us software engineering, and a lot of them just use Joel on software as a textbook or something <laughs> like that. So there is, there def there's definitely some enlightenment um, in, in teaching practical things. Um, on the other hand, that's not really what a CS curriculum is. There's often also, in a typical CS degree, there's usually a couple of credits that go towards something that's more practical, like senior year, you may have a practicum where you're expected to work with a bunch of people and develop real software, you know, right. on a team. Uh, and uh, a lot of times there's a, you know, a course somewhere where a professor just makes you do everything like systems programming where a professor just gives you tons and tons of, of programming projects uh, to try to get your programming up to speed. But there is something about like the number of hours I guess this is a, here I am quoting Malcolm Gladwell, the number of hours that you spend practicing something that gives you those skills, it really is the number of hours of coding. You know, the amount of code that you've written pretty directly correlates to how good, how well you can write code. Yeah, yeah that's true. And when you're, no, there's no substitute for quantity. Like me, I'm telling you, I mean, yeah. it's quantity is, is definitely a big deal. So there's another <laughs> argument against regular expressions in 4C. Because <laughs> the number of lines of code you're going to need. Hey, we've come full circle. You'll write thousands of lines of code to do the simplest possible thing, and that's very, you know, illuminating. <laughs> there right. you go. Jeff, do you have a question from Stack Overflow? Uh, I do, but it's a little bit of, well, I'll just say it briefly. I was surprised there's this question, what's your most controversial programming opinion? And you would think this is a horrible, horrible question. Yeah. And oh. initially, that's what I thought, too. I kind of clicked on it. I was like, this, I was like oh, no, right? <laughs> <laughs> Another bad question on Stack Overflow, but the funny <laughs> thing about this, this actually turned into an outstanding question, and it's really a testament to the people participating that it did not degenerate at all. And it actually, you can read it mm -hmm. and actually get a lot out of it because the people participating actually put a lot of thought into their answers. So this is question uh, 406760. What's your most controversial programming opinion? I mean, this is like a textbook example of the kind of stuff I probably didn't want on Stack Overflow, right? Like, oh, spaces versus tabs. That's really yeah. controversial. Let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> so I was really impressed. The people in it showed a lot of restraint. They really get what Stack Overflow is about. Hey, and they did. reading through it, somebody, I was really impressed. I was really impressed with the responses. Somebody so. went through and cleaned up and to, to make all the opinions big and bold and stuff. That's kind of cool. Well, I think a lot of people did that themselves. I looked at the really? revisions. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, actually win it. So I like so the number the number one is uh the only best practice you should be using all the time is use your brain. Um so that's oh, kind of the anti methodology. Yeah. The anti bandwagon bandwagon. Uh number two, most comments in code are in fact a pernicious form of code duplication. That's that's oh, that good. That. Um uh Java as Java the first sucks. programming language, <laughs> yep. which, Joel, I think that's very near and dear to your heart, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, not all programmers are created equal. That's true. And it's also not uh, kind of controversial. If I only know one language, no matter how well you know it, you're not a great programmer. I have to agree with that. Yep, that's a good one. There's, you know, the reason I like the one about if you only know one language, no matter how well you know it, you're not a great programmer, um, uh, is, uh, you know, my dad's career was as a linguist studying, um, and his, his specialty in the area of linguistics was bilingual education, um, specifically bilingual testing. 
And uh, he said to me that, you know, one of the biggest things he learned from a career uh, of bilingual education is that the students who are bilingual in schools inevitably do better in all their subjects, than, including seemingly unrelated subjects like math and science, do better in all their subjects than the students who are monolingual. That there's something about knowing a second language, whereas there, there are a lot, of, a lot of people sort of have this intuition that all those extra words are wasting space in your brain and they're going to make you stupider <laughs> in general. <laughs> or, or, and, right. and I'm sort of exaggerating, but, but especially in the United States, for example, uh, where there's a strong tendency to believe that it's very important to teach, uh, uh, you know, people grow up in Spanish-speaking uh, cultures should, should just friggin' learn English and forget Spanish. And similarly, um, on the Navajo reservation where my dad did a lot of research, there was years and years of belief that speaking, speaking Navajo was bad. And if you went to the schools that the, uh, that the, uh, um, the, the Indian uh, services bureau or whatever it was called set up, uh, you know, you, you'd be punished and have your wash ma- mouth washed out with soap if you ever spoke in Navajo. And they were really forced to be monolingual in English. And, uh, all, you know, all the evidence is that the, it's the bilingual, the bilingual knowing two languages actually, you know, opens pathways in your brain that allows you to be more intelligent. That's so, interesting. Um, I, I believe there's some nice analogs there to programming as well. Yeah, I think so you just, I think it's the same with programming languages. It's like learning, you know, learning a language that does recursion, a language that does pointers, a language that does things in a funny way. Uh, right. Even if it's just funny, like Ruby, ha ha, funny. <laughs> Well, even even on a, a smaller level, like I think that knowing SQL, SQL is a language, right? And I think regular expressions are a language too. And I always really appreciated sure. that these are focused languages that try to do one thing very, very well. They're not trying to be the generalist languages. And I kind of like these specialist languages. I feel like that's kind of the future. I feel like we need a lot of specialist languages and you need to be able to switch Optimal. between them. Well, really that's rapidly. what CSS, HTML, you know, those are specialized languages. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I really enjoyed that question. That's that's my question. Cool. That is All right. We're sort of running out of time. Um, Jeff, I have a note here to remind you to ask me to you to my Right. Something I had like that on my list voice. as well. I just yeah. want to mention that uh, we have two people helping us on user voice now. I have sort of uh, promoted them to moderators. That is uh, Joel Kuhorn, and I am pronouncing that correctly for once, <laughs> I believe, <laughs> and Sean Massa. And they were chosen because they had participated uh, at a higher level than really anyone else in, on user voice, sort of just already. So I'm just sort of naturally encouraging the behavior that they already had. So cool. Um, appreciate that. So and that's at uh, stackoverflow.uservoice.com, which is where you can submit uh, feature requests and vote on new feature ideas for Stack Overflow. Right. And we do pay attention to that stuff. Um, in fact, I've been going on quite a rampage of actually satisfying a lot of those requests recently. So we do look at everything that gets posted there. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who, uh, who did that. Uh, remember that Obama CTO thing? Yes. That was a user was voice user site. Voice. Yeah. So um, uh, a, a friend of mine, Mike Matthew, uh, owns the little company that, that organized that. And um, he, he mentioned to me that there's sort of this one of the weaknesses of uh, – of very large user voice sites is that they work well for the first few days, but then you get this funny effect where you get this really, really, really long tail with a lot of dupes in it and nobody ever votes up or sorts things out there. And they just, and new people come to the user voice list. They're just exhausted by the huge number of things that they see there and search isn't, I guess, working for them. And so they just post a new thing. So you wind up with this ridiculous tail of a thousand dupes kind of, have we you, have that. noticed that. I can show that to you on our site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, if there's a, 
if there's a, we don't we don't we don't quite have that problem with Stack Overflow because Stack Overflow is sort of designed to have uh, that that long tail is 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 people is is Google because it's very specific questions that people get very specific answers to and Google finds them. No, I think it's actually related. I mean, they're they're similar. I mean, I think we could right. fall into that as well. Right. Um, right. I don't know. I I need to talk to Richard about that because I'm having trouble getting to those thousand at the tail because I have to like <laughs> click you know, retrieve twenty over and over. Oh really? Ooh. Yeah. But there, are, you're right. What what you observed is absolutely true, and we see it on our user voice as well. So I'll talk to Richard about that and see what we can come up with. Um, yeah, it may just be a not not quite yet solved problem in the uh, in the user voting sites. Um, that may be it, it's kind of a human problem too because people tend to duplicate stuff like they can't find stuff there's yeah, I don't it's, know it's, it's easier of course they'll always do what's easier and it's easier just to um, duplicate it's easier stuff. to duplicate that's right yeah um, I just want to try one thing before before I sign off just want to see if we can get uh, no um, I'm looking on Twitter because I asked the people on Twitter if they had any questions for Eric Sink. Here we go. No, that's not an answer to that. <laughs> I don't get it. It all comes down to character turn plus tab plus dash. <laughs> so I don't Is that a question? I don't understand Eric, Twitter. Eric, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> I don't for me, Twitter is like, is like a bunch of people throwing like little bombs at me. And every single one of them, i got to figure out how to take it apart figure out what it's going to try to do, understand what the hell they're talking about, who they're replying to, which comment I made four and a half days ago that this is a response to. That's great. Anyway, if uh, the best way to ask questions for the Stock Overflow podcast for our listeners, if you have any questions, is to call our hotline, which nobody did this week, and that's okay. You were on vacation. But next week, we really need some listener questions, and um, you can call uh, the hotline and just record it, um, or you can just use your computer microphone if you have one and record an MP3 and email it to us. And the, the hotline phone number is 646-826-3879. Uh, if you're outside of the U.S., that's country code 1. And the uh, email, if you can just email us an MP3 file, is a podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you really can't record anything, if you just want to email us a question um, using the old-fashioned mechanism of typing, then there's about a 1 in 100 chance that I might read it. But we really do prefer voice because it's way more fun that way. We also have a, a wiki where our listeners contribute uh, to the whole uh, podcast enterprise by um, uh, uh, transcribing things, mostly for the hearing impaired. But also it's a great way to, to if there's just something you want to remember or a little um, rant that Jeff or Eric uh, or I came up with that you think should be in the permanent record, um, just go to that wiki uh, over there at stackoverflow.fogbooks.com and uh, transcribe that. You can also find the wiki link to from the show notes which uh, are always at blog.stackoverflow.com. I know probably most of our listeners have already figured out how to subscribe to this thing in iTunes or whatever, so you never go to that page. But um, blog.stackoverflow.com has show notes every week uh, with links to all the things that we talked about and just sort of a summary about what was in every show and a place for you to put your comments, which we'd love to hear uh, what you like, what you don't like, what we should change, and what we should do better, and uh, what we should do worse. Thanks to Eric for being our guest host. Thank you, guys. This was fun. Thanks, Eric. Take care. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. 
For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.